1949, John Wayne co-starred with Oliver Hardy in a movie that is known as The Fighting Kentuckian. And in the plot line of the movie, John Wayne's character was a man named John Breen. Oliver Hardy's character was a man named Willie Payne. And they were members of a regiment of Kentuckians who were on their way back to Kentucky from New Orleans during the War of 1812. And in the course of things, as they were passing through Alabama, John Wayne's character meets a young woman, and he decides, oh, I want to I wanna get mustered out of my regiment here in Alabama. And subsequently, he discovers a land-swindling scheme in which he comes to the rescue of the oppressed and so on. But for our purposes, there was an interesting exchange that took place between John Wayne and Oliver Hardy. And Oliver Hardy asked the question, you reckon you've got a weakness And John Wayne said, if I have, I don't know what it is. How many of us would have said the same thing? But Oliver Hardy replied, and he said, well, I do. Women. Such it was with Samson as well. He was a strong man. But here in Judges 14, we begin to see a weakness in regard to women, a weakness which would lead to his ultimate demise, but nevertheless a weakness which would be overruled by God to serve his purposes. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Judges as we consider Judges chapter 14 this evening. Judges chapter 14. The historian writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a daughter, uh, saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Temnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, For he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now, at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So when he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on, eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they ate it. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. Then... His father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. When they saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. Then Samson said to them, Let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen wraps and thirty changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Propound your riddle, that we may hear it. So he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, 
and out of the strong came something sweet. But they could not tell the riddle in three days. Then it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle, or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me, and you do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told it to my father or mother. So should I tell you? However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him so hard. She then told the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed thirty of them and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his friend. Now, the chapter that we have just read describes what one writer referred to as the beginning of the beginning. As we saw a couple of weeks ago back in chapter 13, verse 5, the Lord had brought about the birth of Samson so as to begin delivering Israel from the Philistines. And this chapter describes the beginning of that beginning of deliverance. And this beginning of the beginning begins ominously enough, doesn't it? We read how Samson goes down to Timnah and sees a woman. This woman is a Philistine. Samson's, uh, Samson wants to marry her. Now this looks like trouble right out of the gate. Now, as a technicality, the nation of the Philistines is not explicitly mentioned among those nations that are singled out as being off-limits for intermarriage with the Israelites. If you look to the law, Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 6, they're specifically warned against the nations of the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the seven nations that were inhabiting the Promised Land. But nevertheless, there seemed to be a principle here that involves more than simply a wooden prohibition against intermarriage with those specific nations. And of course, the prohibition is religious and not ethnic in its nature. The Lord specifically gave this command, as we find in Deuteronomy 7.4, because marriage with an idolater, a person who wasn't walking with the Lord, trusting the Lord and serving him, would then turn the believer's heart or the person who, you know, would turn the Israelite's heart away from the Lord and turn that heart toward the worship of idols. And we see evidence that there was a spiritual principle involved here that extends beyond those specific nations mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 7 by what we find later on in Nehemiah 13.23. Nehemiah came across uh, some intermarriage between the Israelites and foreign nations in his day, and he was not at all thrilled. And so Nehemiah 13.23, Nehemiah says this, In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. Now those are, those are nations that are not mentioned in the law in Deuteronomy 7. But Nehemiah understood that there's a, there's a spiritual principle here, that idolatry is the, the risk that we run if the Israelites intermarry with these other nations. And so 
he recalled the example of Solomon, Nehemiah 13.26, and he, he said to those who had intermarried with these idolaters, he said, Did not even Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Again, the prohibition is, is religious in its nature, not, not ethnic or national. And so, right off the bat here, Samson is headed in a bad direction. Right? The Philistines are idolaters. Samson is from godly parents. His parents loved the Lord and feared the Lord. And he himself is to be a Nazarite set apart to the Lord. And so we can understand his father and mother's response in verse 3 when they essentially say, hey, isn't there any Israelite girl that will do? Why do you go down to the Philistines to get a wife? Samson, however, is dead set on it. And if you're familiar with the book of Judges, his actual words in verse 3 and the historian's narration of the events and that use those same words in verse 7, there should be some alarm bells going off in your head. The ESV gives a more literal rendering here where we read Samson's words, get her for me for she is right in my eyes. If you're using the New American Standard Version, you'll see that the footnote gives, gives that rendering as, as more literal, that she is right in my eyes. Then again in verse 7, Then he went down and talked to the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Now if you are familiar with the book of Judges, and you recall the closing chapters of the book of Judges, say from chapter 17 on to chapter 21, you may recall that there's a condemning line that is repeated a couple of times. 17.6 and Chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse in the book. And that line runs like this. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. This is not good. This is not a compliment to the Israelites of that era. They may have been doing what was right in their eyes, but that did not make those actions right. Their judgment concerning right and wrong was actually skewed. And that's, uh, that's the point of those closing chapters of the book of Judges. And here in chapter 14, we have Samson choosing a Philistine bride who was right in his eyes. Matthew Henry's words of caution are no doubt applicable here. He said, He that in the choice of a wife is guided only by his eye and governed by fancy must afterwards thank himself if he finds a Philistine in his arms. And so, single men, take, take that into consideration as you're looking for that special someone. If you're guided only by the sight of the eye and what happens to please your whims, you'll have yourself to thank if you have an ungodly woman as your wife afterwards. But verse 4 points out something bigger that's actually taking place here, and those are the purposes of the Lord in all of this. So we read there, However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now the way that we understand verse 4 is going to largely color our understanding of the rest of the chapter, or at least color it quite significantly, I think. The big question here at issue is whether Samson himself knows that this is of the Lord, and Samson himself is seeking an occasion against the Philistines because the Spirit of the Lord is stirring him up against the Philistines in this way, or whether, on the other hand, this was not only something that was unknown to Samson's parents, that the Lord was seeking occasion against the Philistines, but maybe 
maybe this was also unknown to Samson himself. And so, on that note, we would do well to ask the question, who is the he there of verse 4, where in the second phrase of the verse it says that he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Is the he there the Lord, or is the he Samson? Older interpreters of the text, and I think some that are probably more modern, lean toward the he of verse 4 being Samson, that Samson was seeking an occasion against the Philistines, namely that the Lord had put this design in his heart. And they would point back to the end of of chapter 13, where chapter 13, verse 25, says that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. And so the Spirit of the Lord was was working in him, and they would say, well, this this was the Lord working in him to stir him up to seek this occasion against the Philistines. And the way this played out then was... Samson, finding a Philistine girl he was attracted to and wanted to marry. Now, I think that line of thinking here is certainly a possibility. I don't think there's anything in the text of the chapter that clearly and necessarily and absolutely refutes that line of thought. But on the other hand, it can be said in looking at verse 4 that the nearest antecedent of the the word he, have this pronoun he, the nearest antecedent is the Lord. The Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And I think when you, when you couple that with the fact that what Samson says about the woman in verse 3, that she's right in my eyes, and what the narrator says about Samson's view of the woman in verse 7, and when we think about Samson's later history of being involved with women with whom he had no business being involved, it seems rather to me that what we have here is that Samson found an attractive Philistine woman and he's ready to get married He seems to be doing what is right in his own eyes, just like the nation of Israel at large at this time. That would be be my read on the situation here. And if indeed that is what is going on here, then we should notice here the way in which the Lord overrides even sinful, selfish, and fleshly desires and uses them for his own purposes. This doesn't justify sinful, fleshly, and selfish desires, But, nevertheless, we're reminded here that God is in control of all things. Verse 4 is clear that this turn of events was from the Lord. He rules over all, and he overrules all for his own good purposes. And if we think just about the, the history of characters in the Bible, I think Judah and Tamar are a prime example of this. Now, we're not going into great detail about Judah and Tamar. You can look to Genesis uh, 38 if you want to to know more about Judah and Tamar. But there was no excuse for the sin of either one of them. But yet the Lord overruled their wickedness so as to make them instruments in bringing his Christ into the world. Judah and Tamar are ancestors of Christ according to the flesh. Their actions were wicked, horribly wicked and sinful. But it was overruled by God for good. And even so here, Samson's headstrong foolishness was being used by God to begin delivering the Israelites from the Philistines. We would do well to remember that the Lord's ways are inscrutable to us. They're unsearchable. We cannot fully analyze nor understand God's ways and God's purposes. Dale Ralph Davis's comments are helpful at this point when he noted, This text should hold out some hope for God's people. Frequently, all we can see are the onions of a situation. 
The sin or the smell of disappointment seems to dominate the scene, seems to cover our whole map. But perhaps that is only the cover for Yahweh's secret work. Perhaps our greatest comfort is hidden in what we don't know or can't see. Perhaps it is from the Lord who has his saving design to work either through or in spite of the yuck and the muck. Sometimes all we see is it's just the ugliness. We can't see, like Samson's parents, and I would say even Samson himself didn't know there in verse 4, that the Lord was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. We don't always know what God's purposes are. His ways are often hidden and unknown to us until it's already accomplished. And sometimes once it is accomplished, we still don't get it. And it'll be in eternity when we finally get it. Now, most of you are probably familiar with the fundamentals of the story as it, as it unravels from here. How Samson goes down to, to Timnah with his parents so as to arrange the marriage. How he uh, attacks this, this lion on the, on the journey down. He's empowered by the spirit to, to kill the lion. We know how they, they come back down for the wedding Samson turns aside there to see the carcass of the lion and finds it full of bees and honey, how he scooped it out to give it to his parents, which was at least a little bit dubious of him, if not worse, as a Nazarite, one who is supposed to be set apart from from dead things. Here he is scooping honey out of the dead carcass of this lion. We know how Samson goes to the wedding and they give him 30 uh, Philistine companions, and he, he makes a wager to them. Now, this and it propounds this propounds this riddle in all of this. Now, uh, you know some of you are familiar with the Hobbit, right? This is uh, this is Bilbo and, and Gollum going back and forth over riddles, right? And we know of how these guys here couldn't couldn't guess it, and so they intimidate the bride. And verse 15 is really some serious intimidation, isn't it? They say, we'll burn you and your father's house with fire. They're they're not messing around. They're coming uh, blazing, literally, after her if she doesn't deliver the lowdown on this riddle. And so she begs and pleads with Samson. And here we see Samson showing another one of his characteristic weaknesses. Not only is he weak for women, he is weak for women who fuss and pester him. Right? He can't take it. So he gives in to her, as we know. He later gives in to Delilah. This is another one of his great vulnerabilities. And, uh, and so in both cases, he, he gives out the secret to these women who continually pester him. He gives in, and then she tells the, the riddle to the companions. They tell the answer to Samson on the seventh day, and then Samson is forced to pony up, so to speak, these 30 changes of garments that he had pledged to them. But what is shocking when we think about it is how he pays off the wager. He goes to the Philistine city of Ashkelon and kills 30 Philistines, takes their clothes, and gives it off as the payment to those with whom he made the wager. And then he goes back to his father's home in anger. And if that is not a shocking enough scene for us, look at verse 18. We're told there that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him for this feat, right? The Spirit of the Lord comes mightily on him so he can go to Ashkelon and kill these 30 men to give their spoil up. John Gill observed that Samson was now raised up of God to be the judge of Israel and that he acted now as such under the direction and impulse of the Spirit of God and the persons he slew were the common enemies of Israel. And so this is not, uh, this is not simply a... Uh, just random act of murder. This is, 
This is Samson being raised up as a judge, as was foretold by the, uh, the angel of the Lord to uh, his parents when they appeared to him in, in chapter 13, that he would begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. These guys are the common enemies of Israel, and Samson goes down and kills them. Or as another writer put it, the text then is clear. What we're dealing with is not Samson's temper, but the Spirit's power. If this seems brutal, we must simply live with it. We've already seen that when the Lord delivers his people, he does not always dip his saving axe in Clorox and sprinkle them with perfume. To be delivered from evil will frequently be messy. Those words are true. And this chapter is a good reminder to us that deliverance from evil means destruction. The difference between victory and destruction, the difference between deliverance and defeat, is simply a matter of what side you're on. Deliverance from evil and victory over evil for God's people means the destruction and the defeat of God's enemies. First and foremost, we know that this means the destruction of the enemy, Satan himself. Christ came into the world to redeem a people for himself, but the working of that redemption for the saving of those people means destruction for the other side. And so we read in 1 John 3, 8, that the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. We read in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, that Christ partook of flesh and blood so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Or we read in Colossians 2.15 of how Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them. This is Christ destroying the works of the devil and delivering his people. It's victory for his people. It's defeat for his foes. And though Christ struck the death blow at his death and resurrection, what was started then will be carried on to completion when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And Christ's return in glory and the slaughter of his enemies at the last battle will make the killings in Ashkelon look like nothing. The angel of the Lord calls out in Revelation 19, 17 and 18 and says to the birds, Come and assemble for the great supper of God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. That's some serious carnage. It's destruction, it's defeat, but it's deliverance, it's victory for God's people. Again, the difference between victory and defeat, the difference between deliverance and destruction, is just a matter of what side you're on. We know those wonderful words of, of Psalm 2, those words of invitation that show the destruction that's coming, but also at the same time bring on the invitation to salvation, where David says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And in the gospel, Christ offers himself now so that we may take refuge in him. He went to the cross and died for our sins and rose again three days later so that all who trust in him would be delivered, would be on the right side, would be delivered from 
the destruction that we have rightly brought unto ourselves by our sins. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in Jesus Christ. So let's take refuge in Christ and avoid the coming destruction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your ways. Though we often do not understand what you're doing in the given situations around us, nevertheless, we know that you are trustworthy and that you are good. And Lord, we praise you that what seems mysterious to us now will one day be fully clear. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would recognize that heaven and hell stand in the balance in this world. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would flee from the wrath that is to come, that we would flee to your eternal kingdom. We praise you, Father, that you have opened the way for us through Christ, the forgiveness of sins, new life, that we may be born again by the working of your Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that all of us would flee to Christ and avoid the the coming judgment. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.